This is Why We Plan, a podcast for business owners and their advisors about how to better plan for the exit from a business. Join us each episode as we discuss different elements of exit planning, including real-life stories, challenges, and opportunities of owners and their advisors. So welcome, everybody, to this edition of Why We Plan. I'm your host, John Brown, the co-founder of Business Enterprise Institute, or BEI, which is focused on helping business owners benefit from their lives work. And we do that through working with advisors and helping them gain the experience and, and the tools and training necessary to uh, create a great exit plan for business owners and help them leave their business in style. With me today is Jonathan Dio. First of all, Jonathan, welcome. Secondly, explain the origin of your last name. I've never seen anything close to that before. So uh, Dio is de joie. If you go back to the you know 1400s, it's of yeah. joy uh, or play. It's a, you know there's a chateau de joux on the on the border of Switzerland and France that I visited you know for my honeymoon 20 22 years ago. But that's, uh, that's, that's the origin. That's great. Having a last name like Brown, I'm always interested in unusual <laughs> last names. But Jonathan, tell us a little bit about your practice first of all. Uh, so I'm a financial planner, uh, and uh, I work with. I actually work with a variety of people. Most of our clients are are sort of strong women, um, women that run their own businesses, uh, female attorneys, um, and I. I didn't really understand that until this is probably a decade ago. I've been doing this for 25 years, but about a decade ago, we hosted a a theater event, and I looked up at the audience. And there was all women. And I was like, "Wow, that's that's my client base." And I and I didn't I didn't really put that together, but I think it's because we're so. This is why I like the show, right? This we're so planning oriented, and planning is something that's very attractive to, uh, more attractive to uh, uh, female entrepreneurs than male entrepreneurs. Maybe, maybe I'm I don't want to get gender specific, but yeah. it seems to be more more attractive to that group. You know, I think um, I would agree with that. I, again, I haven't really thought of it that way. Uh, I guess what I've seen in the last 25 years is far more women involved as business owners uh, and also as financial advisors. Yeah, well, they had a, there was a, there was 1%, 25 years ago, there was only 1% of the population of advisors was women. So now it's maybe up to 19. So there's still a long ways to go, but uh, it's, it's great to see. Uh, that's interesting because I would, I would guess that half of our, financial advisor members are women. So I, to answer your question, I think women are more planning oriented. That sounds like a, a gross overgeneralization, but that I would agree with you on that. It's if you just think about my mom and dad, you know, my mom was always planning. My dad was always trying to figure out where to earn another dollar, like planning, yeah. thinking it out. Right. And it's just, it's, it's a different mentality, but both are necessary. Well, as interesting as this topic is on his last name and, and the emergence of women as a strong factor and force in, in financial and exit planning, we should probably talk about today's topic, uh, which is what owners of financial services industries, a financial advisory firm, a financial planning firm, uh, what should they be considering? Because there's this 
huge, and you can explain it better than I can, this huge movement towards consolidation in your industry, unlike probably any other industry I'm aware of. Yeah, no, it's, it's... Explain the origin of that, the consequences of that, uh, how those of us interested in maybe transferring ownership of our financial planning practices, uh, what, what should we be considering in designing uh, our practice and the type of, of clients we should have and so on? Yeah. So I just as a little bit of background, in 2021, I did merge my practice into a larger firm. Uh, and so I, four years ago, I looked at doing it for the first time. And mm -hmm. four years ago, uh, instead of doing it, I was talking to my brother and he was going to come on and join me as a COO and take over all those things that I didn't really want to do. I want to work with clients. I want to work on financial decisions and modeling and that kind of stuff. I don't like HR. I don't like technology stacks. I don't want to do those kinds of things. And so he was going to come on and do it. And so the stimulus for me was in June of 2021, my brother died. And, mm -hmm. and so I very quickly pivoted and said, all right, I talked to these people three, four years ago. Um, I'm going to hire you know, some advisors. I'm going to talk to more people. I'm going to find a firm. I'm going to merge with them. And I found a great firm uh, at EP Wealth, and I'm really, ha I'm really happy to be there. So the process is really, really interesting because I had a stimulus in the death of my brother that moved me to do this. Wow. But the outcome, I got so much more out of it than I had anticipated. Um, things like, you know, I knew that I didn't want to do tech stacks and HR. So that was great. You know, like the infrastructure was there. I got to offload operational stuff. Um, it lets me focus more time on my clients. But the upshot, because I have more time and I can serve my clients better, I'm actually growing faster. My team is actually growing faster. And, you know, as part of the part of the merge, I'm a partner in the new firm. So that's a, that's actually a big deal. It's a big economic deal to me. So I'm, when I'm talking to these study groups, my friends in the, you know, in the industry, I'm telling them they should look at this. I know that you guys want to grow it. I know that it's your thing and it's your baby and it's important. I, I know all that. And you can be, you can grow faster. You can actually do more work, better work for your clients. You have more resources available to you by merging with one of these bigger firms and you do give up control. There's definitely some, some uh, um, psychological challenges in that, but mostly it's positive. You get scale and you get leverage that you don't have as a, you know, $500 million AUM advisor. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I hadn't thought of it, of it that way. Uh, I was always thinking the almost outrageous multiples of, uh, in terms of revenue that we're seeing in these acquisitions that really make it financially attractive for people like you to, to merge with another organization. I didn't really appreciate the other benefits of merging other than just getting a lot of money. Yeah, and there's no doubt there is a lot of money. I didn't even, I mean, I, I had a lot of money thrown at me that I, that I didn't take. You know, I had much higher multiples that were available that I, that didn't make sense because they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow the same kind of system to go forward with clients and didn't give me the same access to growth and the same access to the next stages. Um, and as a partner in another firm, and I'm 50, right? So there's, this is probably a different conversation if someone's 65 or 70 and looking at doing this, right? They're not interested in growth necessarily, but I got, I have runway, so I have time. And so growth makes a ton of sense and being part of something makes a ton of sense. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fish or golf the rest of my life. I, I, I can't imagine what that even looks like. So for me, it makes sense to look at those other resources and those that growth possibilities. 
Uh, that's great. Let, let's talk a little bit about how to grow a valuable financial services, financial advisory firm. And from the perspective of, of our business, which is to help advisors develop a stronger practice based around business owners who are ultimately going to transition ownership. How does that fit into your role model, your, your modeling? Well, so business clients, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, there's, there's two real big advantages to business clients. The first real big advantage is in our industry, and I think this is reasonable. I, I'm not fighting against this. I think this is a reasonable thing to say. In our industry, there is there is a pressure to reduce costs uh, for you know everyday clients, mm -hmm. and I think that makes sense. So there's two ways that people go with this, right? You can reduce costs, and you can you know battle to get to the bottom of the lowest price, and and you're never going to compete with Vanguard. You're never going to compete with you know uh, a robo advisor for that. Um, but you can also increase services. And so one of the advantages of business clients is they need more in-depth services and more in-depth planning. They want, they desire, they require those kind of services. So having business clients is, is, is huge for the valuation of your firm because you have really sticky clients. And this, there's a big assumption in here. And, and I want to be clear about that assumption. That assumption is you're actually providing that value. You know, the way you get great clients is by serving great clients really, really well and get introduced to more clients. Yeah. Uh, and if you do that, and that's, you know, that's the model we've always done is, is, you know, seamless, proactive service. You know, we're constantly scouring for things that we can do better, things that we can, we can provide to clients that they're not getting someplace else or, or not getting high quality someplace else. So that's, so what do you do for business owner clients that you don't do for uh, a university professor, for example. So we, tr it's it's we try to do everything we can for everybody, but there are things that a business client um, needs that a university professor doesn't need, and and that's like deep tax modeling. Uh, it is you know how do you manage the succession plan for the business itself? Um, they and business owner clients have more complex uh, questions. So what? <laughs> the, the example of the uh, college professor may not be a good one because college professors often have outside things they're doing. They're writing books, they're, you know, they're public speakers, they're doing lots of other things, right? They're investing in other projects. And so they, they, have, they have other things going on, um, but not, not perhaps as complex as a business owner with seven employees or, or, or seven crews or you know, what, whatever it is that the business uh, is doing. And so they just ask more complex questions and an advisor can be very valuable in answering those complex questions. Yeah, and I think, you know, from my perspective, the real value of a financial advisor uh, in exit planning is that you do planning. Right. Which sounds like it's silly. Yeah, of course we do planning. But as an old lawyer, uh, lawyers don't really engage in planning. We're more problem solvers. We have a task. We do the we complete the task, we benefit the client, we move on. Same right. with CPAs. The CPAs do tax preparation, financial statements. They don't, for the most part, do a lot of forward thinking with their clients. <clears throat> Excuse me, like what is this going to look like in five or 10 years? Well, that's what you do as financial planners. In large part is planning for the future and making sure 
that's a financially secure future. And that is what exit planning does as well. It's if we don't have a good exit from the business, then probably there's not a great financial future for that business owner because she's devoted her time and effort in building that business value. And if we can't uh, benefit from that, we're not going to be able to exit. Yep. And, and, you know, all of the family dynamics come in and how do we take care of the kids and multiple marriages and, and all, all of these things are so, so important. And, and, you know, this is probably eight years ago. Now I had clients asking me, Hey, I can grow my business. I know how to invest money. I get all this stuff. I'm really worried about my kids and making sure that they don't inherit a mess for one or Mm -hmm just that they know how to manage this thing if something happens to me. Uh, and that becomes a huge part of what we end up doing is, is how, do we, how do we help the receiving generation receive, not just the granting generation grant? Yeah, it's, that is interesting. And I'm, I'm actually right now grading some exams for a credential we offer. And I'm on family business transition planning this earlier this morning. And, and one of the big issues is we have two children, let's say, to keep it simple. One's in the business, yep. one's not in the business. How do we create fairness yep. ultimately between the two? One's contributing to the value of the company. One's the university professor again, right? They're, they're doing their own thing. Yep. Uh, that's always a fascinating discussion and planning opportunity for for advisors of all all the different professions, but it strikes me that financial advisors are more attuned to maybe some of the less economic financial decisions that have to be made and more toward the, what we call aspirational goals of fairness in the family, having a legacy, um, making sure the business stays in the community. Those are issues that that I think financial advisors tackle more easily. Yeah, I'd say other advisors. I would say that's true of good financial advisors. (laughs) I think there's definitely a line there where most are many financial advisors are still talking about the S and P 500, Uh, and that's it's you know it is what it is. But uh, uh, to provide really really provide long term value, you want to get into those deep questions. Yeah, and it's more of a a financial advisor who does planning. Yep. rather than in providing just investment advice. Absolutely. Yep. Um, anything else you wanted to comment on in this area? Um, no, nothing, nothing comes to mind. I mean, if there's uh, um, if there were questions about the, the process, you know, I'm happy to talk about the process. If there's questions about, you know, in merging our firm, I learned a ton of things and maybe this is a whole separate uh, conversation, but uh, it's, I think there's a lot of financial advisors out there that are looking at this. Um, and I think that there's not many resources from other advisors that have gone through it. And I'm, I'm happy to be that resource. Well, let's, let's talk a bit about that. What, when you talk about the issues financial advisors may face as they're thinking about merging, what stands out to you that they may not be aware of that they need to be aware of and, and deal with? So top of mind right now, the one thing that was a surprise in my whole uh, conversation, and I, you know, I had the tax attorney, I had the the deal attorney, I had everyone review everything. Um, I learned after the fact about remedial income. I, I learned after the fact that transferring zero basis stock to another company itself 
creates, you know, uh, uh, a different level of taxable event that I didn't, I didn't know about. Like, uh, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about uh, business income that is retained earnings, but you still, as an owner, have to pay taxes on that. Remedial mm-hmm. income was a whole, was a surprise for me. I, I did not know what that was. And I'd say that any advisor that is going through this, they should look at what, you know, they should look at remedial income. They should take a, you know, take a peek at what that means and how that affects them. And if it comes into play. Well, how did it affect you? So I, I'm, you know, without getting into specifics, I, I became a partner. So, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 which means some of the equity of my old firm became equity in the new firm. Mm -hmm. Um, but because I had no basis in that equity, so my, my basis is basically zero and prior partners of the new firm have basis. They do have a basis in there. Uh, that has to be in a, in a way that has to be equalized. And so how that's equalized is I receive remedial income. And their basis comes down, my basis goes up, that is income to me after the fact. And because that's income to me, that is not actual income, it's just a taxable income. So I owe a tax on an income that I don't receive. And that's different than, you know, retained earnings that you often have to pay taxes on that goes to develop the business later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I wasn't aware that that was there. And so it's a small surprise. Uh, you know, the, the, the deal, um, numbers take care of it. So it's not a, you know, it's not, not anything to be concerned about. It's just something that I wish I was aware of beforehand. How about the, um, issue of you're coming in to an existing successful firm, mm. you're coming in as a partner. Mm-hmm. What are the dynamics of that? Is there a, a culture that you have to adapt to? Do you have more responsibility for reporting what you're doing or your group is doing? Is it changing the dynamics of the actual practice for you? So in terms of client-facing things, it's just better. Like I have way more resources and all that kind of stuff. But um, the thing you point to there is the, is the reporting dynamics. They're definitely different. Um, I would say that the advantage of going through or working with uh, an, an M&A group, uh, I worked with um, Dave DeVoe, uh, DeVoe and Company. The advantage of working with DeVoe and Company is they have a stable of potential acquirers. Mm-hmm. And in the process, I... I looked at 20 different acquirers and I had serious conversations with probably seven or eight of them. Um, and in that conversation, I got to know what the cultures were like. And I got to talk to lots of different people. And, and so you can kind of find a cultural match. Um, it's not perfect though, right? For sure there's differences and you gotta, you know, I don't, I don't own hundred percent of the thing anymore. So I don't make, I don't get to make the decisions. I have to remember, I didn't want to own hundred percent of the thing anymore. I wanted I wanted to not deal with some of these complex questions and I wanted to out- offload those, those infrastructure and operational uh, questions. So I have to remember that when I don't like them. <laughs> Sometimes I don't like the answers, but I didn't want to make the decision. So it's, it's better. The other point that, that you raised, I, I think is really interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, but in the normal, when, when an owner of a, let's say a regular business, not a financial services business, wants to sell their business and it's valuable enough to be attractive to many other potential acquirers. So it probably has, you know, north of a million dollars of EBITDA or $2 million of EBITDA these days, perhaps. Then what we do, uh, 
in the planning process is we introduce the owner to investment bankers. Yeah. In the process, investment bankers use, and that's kind of what Defoe was in your scenarios. What they do is they identify potential purchasers. Yep. And then who will be interested in the owner's business. And then the owner through the sale process itself meets the potential purchasers, um, sees, looks at the different deal dynamics offered by each, each with how much money I get up front, how much money I get, what my role in the new company is going to be. And so you are able to achieve an optimal result yep. because you have many qualified buyers bidding for your practice. And that sounds exactly like what you were able to do. And I would say very few financial advisors go through the process that I believe you went through. Oh, I have, I have friends that went through the process sort of parallel to me and they did it themselves and they yeah. didn't, they didn't have the same conversations I had. And I, you know, I don't think that they lost anything in terms of multiple, but they don't have the same kind of fit. They don't have the same, I mean, there's all kinds of decision factors here. It's not just about money. It can't be just about money. If it is, uh, you're in the wrong business. That's crazy. Um, the money is part of it, but also what are you gonna do with my team? And there were, there were people I talked to that said, yeah, we don't want this person, that person, and this person on your team. There were people that I talked to that said, um, yeah, we'll give you all this money, but we're going to actually use your practice to sell insurance products. Like it's, you know, there's, there's, what do you want? What do you want your practice? What's your legacy going to be? What are you leaving behind? Uh, and it, that's really important, right? Yeah. And in that process gave you that opportunity yep. that your friends didn't have because it wasn't offered to them. Right. Right. Cause it was an, ex it's an expensive commission, right? Oh, yeah. do I want to spend that much money to hire somebody to get me and maybe a better deal? Well, I don't know. I did. I, I absolutely did. And it was worth every penny for me. That is, that's good information, good advice. Uh, thanks much. And, and I think you're a good example of why we all need to plan for our exits. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. That was wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. If you'd like more information on better ways to plan for the future, please visit exitplanning.com.